Let's see how loud I am now. I think it's better. I might have accidentally turned my mic on to mute and not on to full earlier, so that might have been what was going on. Uh, so I apologize to anybody watching or anybody in here that couldn't hear. Sometimes the other mics in the area pick up. Uh, kids are released to junior church if they haven't gone yet. Usually they know the routine pretty well. So go on to junior church at this time. We're going to be going to James chapter 5, verses 19 through 20 in a minute. James 5, 19 through 20. So if you want to go ahead and make your way there in a Bible you brought with you, or if you're at home in your Bibles, James 5, 19 through 20. Just an announcement. If you probably noticed, we're heavily limiting announcements um, as we tried again and again to do. But tomorrow night, the elders are meeting at 5.30 and administrative council's meeting at, at, at 7 o'clock p.m. So if you're on council, please come at 7. It's our quarterly meeting. And if you're in the elders, um, please come at 5.30. I know two of the elders I'll get by phone. And if you're on um, Spiritual Life, it's going to be meeting at 6.30. So if you can make it to Spiritual Life at 6.30, uh, then we're meeting at 6.30. And um, I think that's the only team meeting. Uh, Jim said that if you're on stewardship, if you have questions, you want to talk about anything, he'll be here between 6.30 and 7, and you could talk to him. So anyways, James 5, 19 through 20, that's where we're going to go to now. And I see um, the comment that the volume sounds better now. So anyways, thank you for commenting on that on the live feed. We're going to talk about staying in the truth. This is the last sermon on James for now, and we're going to talk about staying in the truth. And one major theme here is sin, which is not dealt with, is contagious. Sin not dealt with is contagious. It is better to confront sin in love so that it doesn't spread to others. It is better to confront sin in love so it doesn't spread to others. And by the way, that is an act of grace. Like, that's a good thing so that you can repent of the sin and move out of it and follow God's way. It's not a popular thing. And by the way, we don't usually confront, you know, a one-time sin. This is generally talking about patterns of sin. You know, lifestyles of sin. Things like that. Listen to this. John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist movement, which led to the United Methodist Church across the, the world. And John Wesley preached on the 5th of February, 1738. 1738, February 5th, 1738. And he preached at St. John the Evangelist, Westminster. And he preached on those strong words. This is his journal, his journal or diary. He said, he preached on those strong words, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. But this is what he wrote. I was afterwards informed many of the best in the parish were so offended that I was not to preach there anymore. So offended, he preached the Bible. That's a good passage. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It's metamorphosis. But the people were offended, kicked out of the church. The following Sunday, he preached on 1 Corinthians 13.3. By the way, that's the love chapter. And he preached on that at St. Andrew Hallborn. And here, too, he was not allowed to preach anymore. This happened at several other churches. It also happened to his friend George Whitfield and John Wesley's brother, Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley wrote many of our great hymns. George Whitfield, you may know of. George Whitfield came over to the colonies, and he preached to thousands upon thousands. Benjamin Franklin, who was not a Christian, loved to hear George Whitfield preach, and they would talk often. Well, they both were told the same things. They preached the Bible, but the words of the Bible were so offensive, so they were no longer allowed to preach in those churches. Wesley's words were, many of the best in the parish were so offended that I was not to preach there anymore. 
They were offended by the scriptures. They were offended by the Bible. So they did not want John Wesley preaching there. Yet, they did want to continue as a church. I always find that very interesting. Like, why be a church if you don't believe the Bible? Why be a church if you can't preach and teach and, and, and follow and study God's word? They wanted to continue as a church. And by the way, that's encouragement for our time, right? I mean, we're in a day and age that's becoming increasingly secular and increasingly anti-church and anti-Bible. You know, we're in a day and age where people don't, are, are, are afraid that they might be offended by the Bible. Well, we've been here before. In John Wesley's day, the 1700s, it was getting very liberal that way. But you know what happened? The Great Awakening happened. John Wesley started... Preaching outside, I'll come back to that. George Whitfield started, they, they never watered down the message. And it led to a great awakening, a great evangel evangelism movement across the country and across the world, over to the new world. And I want to ask, you know, these people that were offended by John Wesley and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, was their problem with John Wesley or was their problem with God and his word? Many times, you know, I'll make it personal. Many times uh, we preachers and maybe Bible teachers, Sunday school teachers too, you know, we get attacked, but we're really just God's messenger. Been there. Maybe you've been there at work and other places. Our scripture passage today comes from James 5, 19 through 20. And in this passage, James wraps up his epistle. James wraps up his epistle by writing about confronting sin. Not an easy topic. But let's read the passage, and in this passage you will see confrontation, restoration, and salvation. You will see confrontation, restoration, and salvation. So let's look at the passage, James 5, 19-20. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. If any among you strays from the truth, wanders from the truth, and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. In this passage, I see the principle of confronting sin. James writes to them as family. He writes, my brothers or my brethren. And, and, and that word, I think it's a Greek word, adelphio, usually. And it can be translated brothers and sisters, so women are certainly included here. James describes a scenario, a case study, where someone wanders from the truth. Someone wanders from the truth. Now, we must question this. Was this man a genuine believer? Or had he heard the truth? And it really did not sink in. Was this man a genuine believer who wanders from the truth? Or was he never a true Christian to begin with? We really cannot answer that fully, but I believe in this scenario, it's not a true believer. It's not a Christian. You will notice in the next verse, James writes that anyone who turns a sinner, a sinner, notice that word sinner, from the air of his ways, will save his soul from death and cover multitude of sins. In the New Testament, the word sinner is used for non-believers. It's not used for Christians. John MacArthur's sermon on this passage points that out. The scriptures use sinner to refer to an unbeliever. Sinner implies one who has not surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In 1 John 2.19, this is a good cross-reference, by the way. 1 John 2.19, John talks of people who went out from them, left the church, but John says 
They were never really part of them to begin with. They left them, but they were never truly part of them to begin with. They might have appeared to be Christ followers, but they really were not Christians. They might have been wolves in sheep's clothing from Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. So I'm preaching this passage believing that right here James is writing about those who are not Christ followers, though they appear to be for a while. Now, it, it really doesn't matter in the end whether they are uh, Christians who left or, or people who were part of the church but, but um, never truly saved and they wandered. Either way, our response is to be the same. To go and confront them and to talk to them and to try to bring them back and get them to repent and turn their life over to Christ as Lord and Savior. You know, James writes of someone who wanders from the truth. Wanders from the truth. Something I read about that verb, uh, that verb to wander, to wander. It's a verb. And get what, get this. Uh, the word to wander or to stray is planetes, planetes. We get the word planet from that planet. And of course, a planet, as we know, is a wandering body. That means to reject. That verb to wander, to stray, means to reject, to go astray, to apostatize, to wander. The term is used in scripture many times, and many times it's used to refer to physical wandering, and many times it's used to refer to spiritual drifting, and frequently it is used to refer to the condition of the unsaved. The unsaved are said to wander or stray. So here you have somebody who strays or wanders from the truth. What's our reaction to be? Someone wanders from the truth and now someone else brings that individual back. This means at some point there is a confrontation. Confrontation is a strong term. Maybe it's just a conversation. At some point, there's a conversation between uh, a Christian person, a brother or sister, and, he's, and he or she is talking to uh, one of her, his or her Christian brothers or sisters, trying to bring them back, trying to ask them to repent, to be restored to the faith. At some point, a Christ follower must go to this person and say, hey, you have left Christ you are living in sin. Now, this is dealing with lifestyle sins. It's dealing with patterns of sin. I mean, it's not, we're not called to confront every time we, we hear somebody say a bad word or something. Maybe they've already repented of it. You know what I mean? So the Bible is the Christian's guide, though. Remember that. If we, are, if we uh, can tell that somebody has wandered from the truth, somebody has left the church, somebody's living in sin, we do not confront of our own thoughts. We use the word of God to be our guide. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed. That means inspired. And so it is useful. Why is it, why is it useful? It's useful because it's inspired from God. And it's useful for reproving. That's a soft correction. Rebuking. That's a sharp correction. And training and teaching in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So when we have that conversation, we use the Bible as our guide. Oftentimes what people will say is, you're judging. No, no. If you quote the Bible, you're not judging. God is doing the judging. You're just being the messenger. And that's what this passage is dealing with. Confronting, talking, having a conversation with somebody who has wandered from the truth, and you're using the Bible as your, as your, um, as your guide. You know, that is what John Wesley did in his sermons, by the way. John Wesley was the preacher, and he was not afraid to confront sin. Get this, get this. Every sermon should offend some. Because listen to Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. 
It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We open the word of God. Be prepared for the Holy Spirit to convict us, all of us, certainly myself included, of things that we need to repent of. It should happen. You may be reading Galatians 5, 22 and 23 about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I'm not perfect there yet. I'm praying that I can be gentle. I'm not always gentle. I've had to repent. I might pray that I can be better self-controlled. But then I see a great ice cream store. You know, we, when, you, when you read the Word of God, when you meditate on it, when you ruminate on it, when you hear the preaching of the Word of God, the teaching of the Word of God, be prepared to get offended. But that's a good thing because it's so that you can grow up in Christ. 2 Corinthians 13.5, the Apostle Paul talks about examining ourselves. None of us are perfectly entirely sanctified. To be entirely sanctified means to be sinless. If you say you're sinless, show me that you can walk on water. I've never seen anybody do that, okay? You know? So John Wesley preached the truth and he offended people. And when we proclaim the truth, we might be, we, uh, others might be offended. But Jesus taught us a pattern for having this conversation. Jesus taught us a pattern for having this confrontation. It's in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. He says, if your brother sins against you, and you could, you could say sister as well, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. So you just go and have a conversation. Look, it bothered me, you know, that you said such and such. Let's talk about it. Maybe, maybe, it was a, maybe there was just confusion. Maybe there was a misunderstanding. Maybe you're too thin-skinned. Or maybe they'll say, oh, I'm sorry, you know? I was having a bad day that day. I'm, I apologize. I ask for your forgiveness. You just go just between the two of you. Notice Jesus doesn't say go to social media. No, you don't do that. He doesn't say gossip and tell other people. Go just between the two of you. He says if he listens, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen... Take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So now you bring two or three other people in. in. You're still not called to gossip about it or, or go to social media or go to anything else. You're just bringing in two or three other people. And by the way, that's an Old Testament quotation. In the Old Testament, we see it in Deuteronomy. We see it in many places in the Old Testament. A crime had to be um, evidenced by two or three witnesses. Uh, or the punishment of a crime had to be confirmed by two or three witnesses. That's what Jesus is saying. So now you have two or three other people involved. Verse 17 of Matthew 18. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, a pagan or a tax collector would mean an outsider. So at that point, you go and confront, you and go and have that conversation with your brother or sister, and you have a conversation, and it doesn't go well. Then you bring two or three others. It doesn't go well. Then you bring it to the church. Now, some would say taking it to the church might mean that you take it to the elders of the church. And the elders of the church do something called church discipline, where they, they, they talk to the person. There's no repentance whatsoever at all. And at that point, you say, look, you cannot be part of us because you are living in sin. You're condoning sin. It just does not fit. And healthy churches do practice that, by the way. Paul also wrote about confronting sin in Galatians 6.1. Paul said, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, 
You who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. So you're restoring somebody. A case in point, just yesterday I was at a wedding and I heard a testimony about someone who was witnessing to to someone at at work. And she said, you say that you're a Christian, yet yet you're living with your boyfriend. That's, That's not right. You're cohabitating. You're living in sin right there. And the person that she shared that with thought about it for the weekend and moved out eventually and was truly saved at that point some five years ago and and became, you know, all for the Lord and uh, a true devout follower of Jesus. That's a time when it worked quite well. The woman, a godly woman, confronted that sin. And guess what? The person was truly saved after that and truly restored after that in that way. One other thing I want to share about confrontation, if you're following the notes, I just skipped a few pages just to keep you on your toes. Um, we're on page six now. One other thing I want to share about confrontation. Remember, several times now, I've talked about how we need prayer partners and accountability partners. I've said that a lot in the church, not today, but in the church. Listen, if we are constantly meeting with another, uh, an, a, a man meeting with another brother in the Lord, a woman meeting with another sister in the Lord, if you're regularly meeting in those types of ways, you have something set up to hold each other accountable and to grow in Christ. The Bible says, as iron sharpens iron, so one sharpens his sister or brother, her, um, another. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens his brother. We sharpen each other. This holds us accountable, which builds us up before, before we reach the point of straying. You hear that? This builds us up before we reach the point of straying from the Lord, of wandering from the Lord, of living in sin. You know, it's funny because there was a study done. Uh, George Whitfield um, was preaching the gospel to many. I'm going to come back to that. You know, he went to open air preaching, preaching to thousands upon thousands, and many people were saved. John Wesley was preaching to thousands upon thousands. Charles Wesley doing the same thing. Well, after John Wesley died, the movement continued quite healthy until the 1960s or so. Quite healthy. The Methodist movement, which now is the Free Methodist and the Wesleyan Church and, and, and the Evangelical Friends have been affected by them as well. Many other denominations continued quite healthy until about the 1960s. The movement that George Whitfield started, or God used him to start, it did not continue so healthy. And you know a big difference? John Wesley started small groups. And whenever somebody turned to the Lord and turned to Christ, they were part of small groups. And in those small groups, it was iron sharpening iron. And they held each other accountable, and they just grew up in the Lord that way. So we see right here, James exhorts us to confront those who have fallen away. And that's a graceful thing to do. So in verses 19 through 20, then we see restoration. Confrontation, restoration, salvation. The person is confronted, and he or she is brought back. He or she repents, and they're brought back. The goal of confronting is to restore the person into a relationship with Jesus. Because if we're living in sin, we do not have a relationship with Jesus. We're living in sin. The individual was a sinner in the air of his or her ways, and now he or she is turned from those sins. He, is, he or she is restored to, reli- to a right relationship with God. Restoration, by the way, cannot fully happen without salvation. So if they were not truly saved, they're giving their life over to Christ and being truly saved. What is a right relationship with God worth? You ever think about that? What is a right relationship with God worth? Remember those old commercials? A Big Mac from McDonald's costs about $3. 
A book from the bookstore costs about $10 if you can find one. A uh, burrito from Chipotle costs like $15. I love Chipotle. A cup of coffee from Starbucks costs like $1,000. I mean, it really feels like that. I don't know how... Well, if you like Starbucks, that's great. But they're not cheap, right? But a relationship with God is priceless. We cannot put a price on the intangible, can we? This leads us to the last part of James. So we see confrontation, or you could just call it conversation. We see restoration, restoring them to a right relationship with God. And if they sin against you, hopefully restoring them to a right relationship with you as well. And we see salvation. Confrontation, restoration, salvation. James ends his epistle with salvation. This confrontation leads to salvation. Salvation implies restoration because now if they're truly saved, they're restored to the church as well. And James says, this saves his or her soul from death. The person who wandered from the truth was heading straight to hell. Now they're heading toward heaven. They are saved from death and destruction. James says this covers a multitude of sins. Jesus died for all of our sins. Every single one of our sins are covered by the blood of Christ. Sometimes this process is different, yet the reward is the same. Sometimes you're having a conversation with somebody who truly is saved. They just need confronted about their sin. They repent, they're restored. Sometimes you're talking to somebody who really doesn't know the Lord. You get to lead them to Christ. They are saved and they truly become part of the church. Get this, we have got to be more passionate about sharing the gospel. Jesus truly is the hope of the world. And I strongly believe during this time, right now, all over, all over the United States, all over the world, we are recognizing our own frailties, right? We are recognizing the problems across the country. And the problems, only Jesus can fix the real problem. I mean, only Jesus can fix the problem of death, right? So, you know, we're realizing that a microscopic virus can cause, you know, death and, and, and other problems all across the country, right? Only Jesus can fix that. Only Jesus can fix the moral crisis going on all across our country. Only Jesus can, 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 can really fix the problems going on in these major cities where there's rioting and looting and things like that. Only Jesus in the biblical worldview can fix things. And we need to be contagious Christians. We need to be sharing the gospel, it's about eternal life. There is a real hell. Everyone is going somewhere. Someone once described a death this way. Think of the escalators at the mall. So I, I've actually only been in our mall twice, but, um, but I'm assuming that the malls around the mall in Boardman also has the escalators. When you're going up, you can see other people going down, right? So you're going up, you can see other people going down. So imagine death that way. You're going up to heaven but you can see other people going down to hell. It's a frightening image, isn't it? You're going up to heaven, and you're seeing your friends and family and loved ones going down to hell. And they're looking at you, and they're like, why haven't you told me? Why didn't you tell me about that? You're going to heaven. They're thinking, where are you going? They're going to hell. Why didn't you share the gospel with them? Listen, we all have a mission field, and we're all called to, to, to be Christ to people, to represent Christ, to be ambassadors of Christ, but also to share the gospel with other people. Dr. Callis was the president of Asbury Theological Seminary. He was also one of my seminary professors. He taught my preaching class in seminary. 
He told a story of Sunday school. Now, Dr. Callis was in Sunday school, and he was 86 years old when he was my professor. So he was, we're talking the 1930s. And they're in Sunday school. And what do you like to do in Sunday school? You like to get the teacher off topic, probably. So they got their teacher off topic. And that teacher ended up sharing his testimony with his Sunday school class. That teacher said that he was a drunk. Dr. Callis said that's exactly what they called it then, a drunk. He was a drunk, and he was going to commit suicide. He was going to throw himself in the river. But instead, it was Sunday night, and there was a church service going on. And that guy, who was a drunk, was going to kill himself, showed up at the church service. And then in the night when he was going to die physically, kill himself, he died in a, in a spiritual way and gave himself over to Jesus. He surrendered himself to Jesus as Lord and Savior. He died to self and gave his life to Jesus. And Jesus changed his life. Years later now, that was probably like 1910, and now years later in the 1930s, he's teaching Sunday school to a class. One of that class members would later become a pastor and later a seminary professor and seminary president, sharing that testimony with other people. Jesus changes lives. What did John Wesley do? What did George Whitfield do? Remember, I started the sermon. They offended the people, so they wrote in their diaries and their journals. They're not allowed to preach there anymore. What did they do? Well, they didn't water down the message. You know that 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul's dying words to Timothy. He says, I solemnly charge you under Jesus Christ our Lord. I solemnly charge you under Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead. And, 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 and Paul says to Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Paul says, reprove and rebuke and train with great patience and instruction. And then in around verse 3 and 4, Paul says the time will come. The time will come where people will, people will no longer put up with sound doctrine. They will gather teachers who give them what their itching ears want to hear. But then Paul tells Timothy, but you, Timothy, keep your head in all situations. Do the work of an evangelist. That's verse 5. Well, that's what John Wesley did. That's what George Whitfield did. The people wanted what their itching ears wanted to hear. So they told them, you can't preach here anymore. But John Wesley and Whitfield, they didn't, they, didn't, they didn't water down the message. They went to those who never heard and who appreciated the message. George Whitfield wrote this. He said, the chancellor of the diocese, oh, can't talk. The chancellor of the diocese refused him. That's Whitfield. Permission to preach in any consecrated building until the bishop had given a ruling in the matter. Impatient with the delay, George Whitfield resorted first to Newgate Prison and then to Kingswood. He wrote, one Saturday afternoon, the 17th of February, 1739, the evangelist walked out to the village. He climbed a hill and spoke to a couple hundred coal miners. Blessed be God that I have now broken the ice, he wrote afterwards. By the month of March, the numbers had risen to as many as 20,000 people. Later, John Wesley did the same thing, and so did, so did Charles Wesley. Many were saved, and because of that, we have what became the Wesleyan movement, the Nazarene churches, and, and the Methodist church, and the Free Methodist church, and, and many, the Christian Mission Alliance was impacted by them, and the, the Missionary Church USA, and the Evangelical Friends, and many others. They're the Evangelical Friends ultimately existed before that. But it impacted a whole society and led to the Great Awakening. They confronted sin. They called it out. They preached the gospel. So as you have seen in this passage, James calls us to confront sin, have a conversation. James calls us to share salvation and restore those who have left the church 
and who have been confronted. We see confrontation, restoration, and salvation. The epistle of James is all about Christian living. It's all about Christian living. Now as he ends his epistle, quite abruptly James ends his epistle, and he writes about salvation. Where do you stand with God right now? Is there anything that you need to repent of before you leave this place? Don't wait. Repent today. We're never promised tomorrow. Maybe you don't only need to repent to Jesus, but you need to repent to the person you sinned against. That's biblical. Maybe the Holy Spirit's pricking your heart. Don't resist the Holy Spirit. Or maybe you're here, or maybe you're watching on the, on the Facebook Live or the website, and you're someone who's never really turned your life over to Jesus. The Bible uses four verbs to describe our commitment to Christ. They're confess, believe, trust, commit. We're called to confess we are sinners in need of a Savior. That means repent. We are called to believe in Jesus as the one and only Savior. And we have to trust in him and commit to him. Commit our lives to him. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes in a prayerful, prayerful, meditative state. Where are you at right now? Are you one that needs to commit to Jesus for the first time? Are you one that maybe needs to rededicate your life to Christ? Maybe you've strayed. Maybe you've always believed in Jesus, but you haven't been committed to him. If you need to rededicate your life to him today or to commit to him for the first time, say this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I confess I have sinned and missed your perfect standard. I believe in you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. I'm trusting in you as Lord and Savior. I'm committing my life to you. Please come into my life and help me to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you said that prayer, please share it with someone today. Angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. By the way, you're not saved by the prayer, though. You're saved by what's in your heart. The prayer is just telling Jesus what you're doing. If you have questions about God or the spiritual life, talk to me. I would love to talk to you. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian but you have certain doubts, um, talk to me. I would love to help you work through those. I'm going to turn it over to Steve and the worship team for the closing song now.